You're listening to Straight Shooters, a straightforward golf podcast that'll straighten out your game. And here are your hosts, Keith Bennett and Henry Statina. All right, and welcome back to the Straight Shooters Golf Podcast. I'm Henry Statina, and I am joined with our co-host, Keith Bennett. Keith, how are you doing today? Henry, doing great, man. Really looking forward to this conversation. To uh, No better way to kick off the new year than, uh, than getting some good info out to the listeners. So pumped to have uh, Mr. Adam Young here. Absolutely, absolutely. Me too. Um, so for, for the listener, uh, both Keith and I had picked up a copy of Adam's recent book. Um, it's called The Practice Manual, The Ultimate Guide for Golfers. Um, it's become one of the most fascinating books that either of us have read. Um, lots of great information from beginning to end. And we're here today with one of the rising uh, golf instructors in the world. And, and we're looking to pick his brain as to uh, what what inspired him to write this book and a little bit about his teaching background. So, Adam, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Should be a fun conversation. Absolutely. So, um, so if we if we can just jump right into it, why don't you give us a little bit of a background on yourself, how you got into coaching, and and what inspired you for the manual? Yeah, um, I started golf quite late. I started golf at age fifteen. Um, so I was, you know, I was into other sports before that, but I wasn't really a sporty person, but I took up golf, got immediately enamored by it and uh, put all my focus and attention on it. And being older, I was old enough to be analytical about the game. So I actually learned the game through grabbing Ledbetter books, Faldo books, and then Tiger was rising up at the time. So I used to stay at home on Saturday nights and record his his swing and then freeze frame it, draw lines on the TV screen and then get into my mirror and, and check my positions. So I was probably the, the complete opposite of what I am now as an instructor. That's, I think that's quite interesting because most instructors are the opposite way, right? They learn the game young, they learn through instinctive approaches and then they they get into coaching and they realize, oh my God, I don't have any mechanical information. And then they go down the rabbit hole of mechanical information. So I kind of flipped those, those phases. Um, so yeah, I was very mechanical as a player. Uh, and I believe it held me back more than it helped me um, being too focused on positions. Um, I, I wouldn't say that it was a complete loss. I, I think that, you know, it gave me goals. Uh, you know, I would stand on the range of beat balls for hours trying to get into positions. And probably I learned a lot of skills unconsciously from that. But I, I do look back at it now and, and I know for sure that it, it hindered a lot of my process. Some of it was because the information was wrong or poor. You know, lots of it back in the 90s, early 2000s was all about constraining everything, right? You know, putting t towels under arms and things like that. So, you know, I, I am not a long hitter now. And a lot of that is a result of, um, you know, that type of instruction, which was based around hit as many fairways as you can. I know that's flipped recently where it's all about bombing it. I think I probably would have done better with that approach of someone just giving me a club and say hit it as hard as you can and be more instinctive about it um, so yeah that was my start in the golf really analytical um, and then a, a light bulb moment for me came when I was in university we were studying material science it was actually a golf like a PGM course and uh, the, the guy who was teaching physics 
uh, the material science, he wasn't a golfer. And we were talking about impact physics. We were looking at golf balls and objects hitting metal plates. And we were talking about the dynamics of, of impact. And I remember, I can't remember the exact question, but it was something about, well, what about the swing? And the instructor looked at us weird and he says, well, the swing doesn't matter. That's not what the ball responds to. The ball is just responding to this impact thing, this half an inch of space. And we were all like, well, that can't be true. What about if you're uh, laid off at the top? And he's like, what are you guys talking about? This, this is physics. And so that was a real light bulb moment for me to go away from that. I hated that at first because I was so into swing <laughs> positions, but to go away from that and start to think, wait there, this is all about that impact interval. If you can just get the club to move through impact in, in a desired way, the ball will respond. And that was the thing I was looking for all my life because I like definites, right? I like, if you do this, you will get that. I love that. That is very definite. Whereas the golf, golf is not like that in general, right? Instruction's not like that. It's like, well, you, if you put your swing in a different position at the top, you might get a different result. It might be good. It might be bad. It might require that you practice a lot in order to achieve that result. And it might ne never come. So I, I got enamored by the impact concept and started to really delve down into that and start to think of, well, wait there, what are other, pro what are other approaches to change impact? Um, could we just do it directly? You know, why couldn't I just, if I want my path to go more left, instead of thinking about the top of my swing, why didn't I just think about the club going more left through impact? And I tried it and it worked. I was like, huh, that's strange. Well, why is, no, why is no one talking about this? Why can't you just do this directly instead of indirectly through swing approaches? And as I progressed through that, I started to notice certain changes in my swing. So I was still, you know, video my swing. And I started to notice that, wait there, I'm getting into better positions at the top. You know, I'd, I'd suffered with a very flat lead arm all of my life. And, you know, I tried to force my lead arm into a certain position and it just, I just couldn't do it. And yet by focusing on the club moving left through impact, all of a sudden my lead arm was in a better position. I'm like, oh, well, that's weird. I'm not even thinking about my lead arm position now. And so that, I didn't know it at the time, but that's kind of one of the aspects of what we call self-organization, where I'm giving myself a task you know, a concept, I'm, I'm telling my brain, do this with the club, and the movements arrange themselves. This is one factor in self-organization. There are, there are lots of different levels, as I'm sure we'll get to in this. But yeah, that was my first kind of foray into um, different approaches to change the swing. And then after that, my, my career, I went down to uh, the Cranfield Golf Academy. He's, he was a well-known instructor in the UK. And he's probably the best start in instruction I could get because it was 90% of it was about how to coach. So we were talking, talking about things like taking charge of the lesson, um, how to structure a lesson, how to get someone to do what you want, basically. And, and only 10% of it was about the actual what to do. Most of the instructors, they were pretty proficient in what we want a player to do technically. And so that was a great start for me. I, I kind of resisted that at first as well, because I was still in the mechanical mindset. It, it took a, lot, a long time for me to break away from this mechanical mindset. Um, and then I probably did something that was 
the complete reverse of what I should have done. I went to the Ledbetter Academies, which is known for being very, very technical. But it wasn't a bad, it wasn't a bad decision. You know, I, I think that the Ledbetter instructors are really good, really highly educated. It, it's one of the best academies in the world. But it was it was going back in the spectrum for me. You know, I was going back to being uber technical. Uh, but what it what it helped me do was I now went into that really technical instruction environment with a different mindset. I knew about this stuff like self-organization. I knew about this impact stuff. And so I could see where the technical stuff worked and I could also see the flaws in it. So for an example of that is I used to work at a, a junior academy. I won't mention the name exactly, but it was tied in with Ledbetter and, uh, there were lots of golfers there who, you know, you'd have juniors come who were scratch golfers and they had very flary swings, you know, kind of like Jim Furyk, I suppose, or Matt Wolf, because they weren't for, formally taught the game. It was all, you know, just hitting around trees and things like that. They were all instinctive, instinctive. And these kids, some of them could go out and shoot level par at the blink of an eye. And yet their swings looked very loopy and flary. And then through you know, through lots of swing analysis and, and modeling Aaron badly for a strange reason, <laughs> you see the model because <laughs> his swing looked beautiful. And that's a lesson in itself, right? Aaron Badley's swing was the model swing at this instruct at this academy because his swing was so beautiful. Yet we all know Aaron Badley was not the greatest tour player. You know, he was, the only reason he was on tour was his putting was exceptional. Um, not to say he's a horrible ball striker. He's obviously a world-class ball striker, but he wasn't the best ball striker. Um, and so these kids with these flary swings, they started to have their swings beautified. You know, positions started to look better. They started to look have less extraneous movement. And yet their scores got worse. You know, you had these kids who could break 70 at the blink of an eye, and now their swings looked better. And they're like, wow, it's two years later, and I can't break 80 anymore. And I, I was like, well, okay, this is starting to all build a picture here. You'd be an idiot not to, not to notice this kind of stuff. And you could argue that some of that was swing changes were being made for the sake of aesthetics. And we probably know more about certain things physics-wise now. Like, you know, if you get the club laid off on the way down, it might not look pretty, but we know from work like Sasha McKenzie's work that actually physics wise, that's okay. Uh, and things like the backswing plane doesn't matter as much as we used to think. So there are reasons for that, but the other things are you're, you're jumping into an ecosystem, the player, you know, they have all this, all these ingrained movements and you're changing them. And that has an effect on a player. We, we can't ignore that. If you start to make a player who's very instinctive and you start to make them think about movements, that can hurt them a lot. So you have to be very careful as an instructor. It's not to say never do it. It's just to say we've got to be very careful in our approach when we're diving in and changing what's happening up here because that can really affect what happens with the player. And sometimes they can never get it back. They can never, never get their old way back because you introduce things into the brain that you can't take out. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where I, where I am with my career after Ledbetter, I started writing more, I started, you know, posting on forums and things and, 
asking these questions to instructors and I saw that no one was really thinking that way. So I thought I was kind of crazy. So I just thought I'd put them into a blog post and I started a blog. I started writing that for two or three years. And then, you know, I had a lot of people say, Adam, you got enough material for a book now. Um, one of my closest friends, Audrey Ziff, she said, you've, you've got to write it. And so I just, I wrote the book and with the expectation of never selling a copy, it was just for me to kind of document my thoughts and uh, yeah, it kind of blew up for me and, and uh, here I am. That's incredible, man. What a journey. I mean, this, this, this manual is almost 400 pages long here and it's just so beautifully organized. And that's really interesting to hear that it came from just a kind of a collection of blog posts and you putting your thoughts down on, on paper. Um, so were those blog posts just kind of from lessons that you had in, in, in light bulb moments and revelations where you're kind of working with somebody and noticing a trend or, or maybe noticing something that you had maybe, you know, thought previously was good, but maybe realizing that there's a better way to go about it. And because, you know, there's, there's so much information in here and it's, but it's really chronological and it makes a lot of sense. Um, so how long did it take you to kind of compile all this information? Um, well, I mean, I, God, I can't think of when I started. I, I, you know, I went full on into teaching in probably 2007, I believe. So it took me that long to bring all the data together. It didn't take me that long to write the book, actually. It only took two, two months because all the data was in there. It kind of flows out of me quite well. But um, yeah, you know, there are epiphanies throughout, as, as I said, throughout the career, throughout specific lessons. You know, for one example that came to mind is I was having a lesson with a guy who was shanking it. This was early in my, in my career. And I was still trying the mechanical approaches. And so, you know, I was trying everything. I exhausted everything with the mechanical approaches for why he was shanking it. And even looking back at it now, the, the information was good. What I was trying to do was good, but you know, there are 10, 20, 30 different ways that you can shank it. And the problem was you fix one and then the player would open up two new ones. And so you try and fix those two and then the player will open up four new ones. And that, that leads down a bad road because then all of a sudden the player leaves the lesson with 10 different thoughts. They've not mastered anything and they're still shanking it. So, you know, with that player out of frustration one day, I just said, oh, just, just try and hit it out the toe. Just try and toe shank it for me. And it, that first shot, he flushed it. And he, and then we continued and he didn't shank it for the rest of the lesson. We must have gone 30 minutes without a shank. And previously it was 90% shanks. And we went away from that lesson and I, I felt guilty. I felt like, well, I, I can't do that as a lesson. That's not right. That's not right. I didn't give him any mechanical information. I just told him to hit the other side of the face. And I hated myself for that. I hated that approach. But the player came back a week later and he said, Adam, I haven't shanked one all week. And I'm, like, I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, but it won't last. It's just a Band-Aid. Came back a month later. Adam, I haven't shanked one for a month. I'm hitting, I'm playing the best I ever have. And I'm like, when's this going to break down? And even a year later, he, he wasn't he wasn't shanking it anymore. And by that point, I was already trying it with other players as well. And then I started to develop more of a process behind it. It wasn't just try and hit the opposite side of the face. You know, I was using things like um, uh, scaling the feedback. Okay, so try and hit 
I, I may draw lines on the face. So I draw a line down the center, one line a little bit off the toe, one line on a middle part of the toe, one right on the edge of the toe. And I would try and get people to actually wipe off the marks. We used to draw it on with dry erase marker. So if you hit hit the part of the face, it would leave a, it would wipe off the dry erase marker. Now I use Dr. Shaw's foot spray. Um, but yeah, that approach, I could make an entire lesson out of that, just getting people to explore hitting different parts of the face. And I didn't realize it at the time, but what I was doing was I was taking someone out of their body. So they're not mm. thinking about arm positions or sequences or hips or weight shifts or anything. They're thinking about the tool. They're thinking about how to move the club in space. And so there's a lot of science by, you know, by a few people, but Gabrielle Wolf is one of the main leading people with this. I think like 17 years of science called external focuses of attention. So you could separate it attention into external thinking outside of your body versus internal thinking about arm positions in, inside your body and all the research, all of it. And some of it's flawed. I will say that, but, but all of it still points towards external focuses of attention being better being better for learning retaining that learning being better for transferring it to the context so what that means is if you're doing something on the range and then you go onto the course if you're if your performance is not transferring if you're a god on the range and you're horrible on the course external focuses of attention can help that they've shown to be better for that so so many benefits to this i didn't know the science at the time i was just writing blog posts on what i saw um you know i was talking more about tasks as opposed to movements uh, you could say that's the same as internal versus external uh, and then so when I, I started to learn more about the science, people would read my blog posts and say, oh, Adam, there's uh, some studies that are supporting this. And I would read it and, and go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And then I would kind of take that further and, and think more about how I could categorize things better. So I know having, having read the book, you'll know I have five different types of attention. So there's the internal, that's thinking about your movements. That's what we're 99% of golfers for. And partially modern instruction is to blame for that because everything that we give golfers as instructors is internal information uh, there's external process you know things that i talked about hitting different parts of the face maybe focusing on striking a spot on the ground uh, there's external um, result so that's thinking about the target thinking about the shot shape so that could be good for very good players. You know, people like Aaron Annika Sorenstam play their best when they had those type of attentions. Um, there is neutral focus of attention. So that's something where you're focusing on something that's not relevant to the swing or the outcome. So it's kind of weird. It might be if you've ever tried whistling during your swing or focused mm. on your breathing. Or I do a drill where I get people to count as they're walking into the shot and continue to count as they're hitting the shot or focusing on a metronome. So it's not very golf specific. And it's an interesting one. It distracts your mind so much so that anything that is ingrained comes out more consistently as well. Mm -hmm. So when I have a player who is their patterns or their ingrained patterns are good, I'll often use that with them. So, you know, you get a tall player who's maybe too much inside their head and they're playing bad, not because they've got a bad swing, but because they're inside their head. They're constantly tweaking things, you know, and doing a, a neutral focus can really allow that player to bring out what they already have instinctively. 
And then the last type of attention is, is tough to get into. In fact, probably the more you try to get into it, the less you will. I called it transcendental. So there's, um, you know, there's a little video clip of Tiger Woods talking about some of the best shots he's ever hit. He remembers pulling the club out of the bag, but he doesn't remember anything after that. It's almost like this, it's this zone-like state. We call it the zone. And uh, there are ways that you can improve getting into that. You know, things like rhythms help us get into that zone-like state. If you've ever played, I'm playing table tennis at the moment. And then whenever you get into a, a rhythm, back, forth, back, forth, the moment that rhythm starts, it's like your brain automatically turns off. It's like when you rock babies, right? We're rocking them, we're, we're rocking them in rhythms. why we like music. It allows us to turn our conscious brain off. Um, consistency also encourages that zone-like experience. So, you know, if you drive the same route to work every day, we often get to work and we're like, oh God, did I go through any red lights? <laughs> I don't know, because when we do something consistently every time our brain turns off. So um, it's not always great to be in a zone-like state, uh, but if you are playing well, everything's firing on all cylinders, it can be useful to know to let that happen. Right. Sometimes we're playing really well and we pull ourselves out of that. You know, it's a typical mm. story of a person who's had a great front nine. And then they look at the scorecard and they go, oh, my God, I've got to really concentrate and try now. And what happens? They destroy the back nine. Right. Because they pull themselves out of that zone state rather than saying, right, just relax, keep everything rhythmical, keep the consistent routine. Don't change anything, basically. And uh, try and let this zone continue for as long as possible. So. Sorry, I've talked about, I've thrown a lot of information. I go <laughs> off in loads of different directions, but that book that's 400 pages long is like a, a tiny fraction of what's going on in here. So I, I struggle not to keep on one consistent line. But. No, this is awesome. This is the information that we're looking to hear. Um, you mentioned something very important. I think it's that 99% of golfers focus internally. Mm -hmm. And yet the research shows that learning retention and performance improve better with external focus mm -hmm. um, the the whole first chapter of your book is on ball flight laws yeah the interaction between the golf club and the golf ball and how it produces ball flight and i would assume the three of us would agree that most golfers don't have that information readily available um, in terms of their own understanding and then yeah. you go in after that into the next chapter and you talk all about learning and focus of attention and locus of attention. And um, it's just a different way of thinking than that 99% who are predominantly internal. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious to hear, you know, a, a player, a, a person who reads your book for the first time, or, or maybe someone who comes to you for a golf lesson. Um, what's that process like? How, how do they respond to the information that you offer them? And, and what are some of their questions? And what, what are some of the progressions that they make with this information that might be entirely different from what they have learned or heard in the past? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky that I'm at the point now where most people who come to me for a lesson have, they, they know about me. You know, they usually come to a lesson having read my blog or, or having read my book or bought one of my programs. So they're not, they're not coming in blind. Most of my blogs, I, I clearly outline my philosophy as well. Um, 
but yeah, most people will come or a lot of people will come with very internal thoughts you know if i ask them what are you doing what are you what are you trying to do in the golf swing what's your swing thought now and they'll reel off a list of well i'm trying to do this with my arm and this with my body and so yeah that that can be quite tough because as as i said it took me years right to go from that way of thinking the real internal way of thinking to then seeing the benefits of this external way of thinking i have all the benefits of seeing it myself being both golfers myself and seeing the benefits and i also have the the experience of taking golfers through that progression and seeing the benefits but i have to remind myself when i'm dealing with a golfer that they are not there yet they might not be fully ready for an external focus of attention so it's almost like a game of convincing them improving them while at the same time convincing them that this stuff is real so an, an example of what i might do in a lesson a player might come with a slice they say oh i've been i've been slicing it all my life and i say what are you working on and so they're like well i'm trying to drop my elbow and keep it close to my body and i'm i say well how's that working for you i still slice it <laughs> and so then what i might do is i have a, a golf ball and i have a nail through it i've driven a nail through the golf ball and i'll place that ball on the ground and i'll angle it to the right so that nail is pointing to the right of the target and i'd say well just entertain me for a moment flip that club 90 degrees the only reason why i do that is it gets them out of the golf mindset so flip it 90 degrees so it looks like an axe so the toe is coming in I say, how would you how would you hammer that nail with the, that toe of the club? And they, they do a few little swings and secretly I'm recording it. I say, okay, if you were to make a something bigger than a tap, a little tap of the nail, if you were to really hammer that nail, what would it look like? And they make a bigger swing. And I say, stand back here a moment, and I show them a video of their swing. And all of a sudden the club is coming down on an inside plane, a flatter plane. Their arm is responding better their sequence is better. And I, I can say to that person, well, you weren't thinking about any of that, were you? And they're like, no, I was just focused on hammering that, that, that nail. And I'm like, yeah, this is, how, this is how we're supposed to learn as humans. You give someone a task and the movement should figure itself out for the most part. There are times where that's not true, but for the most part, that's what I try and use. And so that's, that's a good start for someone into how movement can change as a result of just your intention, what you're trying to do through impact. And, you know, even if someone doesn't suffer with a slice, I can take them through a, a gamut of, of nail positions. I could angle that nail 45 degrees left, then 45 degrees right, video both swings and show them and say, look how different these swings look just as a result of you trying to hammer a nail in different directions. And people at home can do this exercise, video your swing, visualize that and see how your swing changes. And then, then it's a matter of let's find the feel or intention for you that produces the best performing swing and maybe even looking swing, but without the look being the goal, if that makes sense. Um, so, you know, for some people to, to have a beautiful looking and performing swing, they might need to feel the, the nail angled more to the right. For me personally, I'm a hooker of the golf ball. I need to feel that nail angled slightly more left to produce a better looking swing. But again, it's that whole concept of you have an intention with what you want the club to do. 
and the swing changes, the mechanics change as a result of that, as opposed to the opposite approach of trying to force your arm mechanics and body mechanics to achieve a different impact. So, um, yeah, so that, taking people through that kind of progression in lessons. And then I use things like, you know, I, I, I create games out of that. Uh, I scale the feedback. That's easy to do with launch monitors now because we have everything in degrees. So we could look at path and I could say, right, let's get that nail 10 degrees in to out and see if you can get that path number to change. Um, so that's scaling the feedback. Um, you, like I said, with face strike, you could also have zero as the center, the sweet spot. You could have plus one, plus two, plus three as, as varying extremes of toe. So plus three would be extreme toe. Plus one would be a little bit off the toe. Then you could have minus one, minus two, minus three would be a shank. Minus one would be a little heel. So you're, you're creating numbers. You're turning that task into something that has numbers attached to it or amounts attached to it. And then you can turn that into a game. It could be, right, let's hit, I've got a quad, GC quad. So it gives me the millimeter value of where you struck on the face. So yesterday I was with a player and I said, right, let's try and hit five millimeters off the toe. I'll give you 10 attempts. Let's try and hit 10 millimeters off the toe. I'll give you 10 attempts. And you just take them through a gamut of exercises and they, everybody improves as they do those exercises. No one can do them perfectly. And, and everybody struggles at first, but the more they practice those exercise, uh, exercises, the more control they get over them. And eventually it leads to the point where they're able to self-coach. It's kind of at the point where they don't need you as an instructor. Because if they have a shank one day, they're they like, well, I know what it feels like to move that strike more towards a toe. And so that was another, you know, uh, highlight for me as, a, as an instructor or a, a light bulb moment for me as an instructor was when I started working on these task things, people became more self-sufficient, self-reliant. Uh, it's the feed a man a fish thing or, or uh, teach a man to fish. And I was teaching them to fish now. And so that was bad as a business model because they don't need you <laughs> as a coach, but it was great as an instructor because they could, they never struggled anymore. You know, I've got players who'd suffered with shanks for years or they came to me suffering with shanks for years. And now all of a sudden within one lesson, they were able to never shank it again or quickly rectify it when it popped up again. You know, that's, uh, you know, in my kind of philosophy there as a coach, one of my goals is to create self-reliant golfers. Um, and there's nothing worse than hearing somebody say, man, if you could just stand behind me every time when I hit balls, I'd hit, I'd hit them great. Because as a coach, you know, they're not really learning anything and they have no way to self-correct and self-diagnose. Um, and so walk me through. Okay, so I think the, the nail on the golf ball is an incredible visualization. I think everybody listening to this can immediately see that nail uh, piercing a golf ball and flipping their club around so they you know, try to hit that nail with the toe of their club. So we're doing these exercises. We're, we're working on hitting various parts of the club face. Now, through those tasks, are we looking to eventually have the brain kind of say, right, this is what a center strike feels like. And this is what, how I organize the movements of my body around that task. And then the brain sort of stores that in a, in a place where it can call upon that again, or is it more for, right. If, if the inevitable happens and we start hitting kind of away from the center, 
I can feel which side of the face that is, and I can get back to center. What, what kind of is the natural progression for that golfer looking to put that into like the, you know, the uh, unconscious competent side of, of learning? Yeah, I'd say the latter is, is where I'm trying to head golfers towards. So, you know, I talk about, we're talking about the um, impact laws or the, sorry, the ball flight laws. I call them the impact laws. Now I've kind of same thing, but uh, there are seven of them. There's, you know, you have to contact the ground in the right place. You have to contact the face in a functional place. You know, yes, modern clubs are forgiving, but most good players don't strike more than five millimeters off, off center. Um, the face direction has to be controlled as, as well to, to the best of our ability. We're human, but um, the path is another variable. Doesn't have to be perfect. The path, you know, you can swing left or right and you can still play really good golf with that. You know, I've, I've seen tall players who swing seven, eight degrees into out. So it doesn't have to be zeroed out. Uh, then we have the loft, the loft we present to impact. That's going to determine a lot of the trajectory and height of the shot. We have the angle of attack. It's number six. And then all else being equal, we have the club speed. All else being equal, the faster the club speed, the farther the ball is going to go. So out of those, I know there's seven people probably like, oh, my God, head, head overload. But I boil it down into the big three, I call them, which is ground contact, face contact and face direction. For every golfer out there, the difference between your best games, your best shots and your worst shots will fall within one of those three things. So your best shot you hit, and then you hit an awful one, it will be either ground contact changed, you hit it maybe a little thinner or a little fat, face contact changed, maybe you hit it more towards the toe or the heel, or your face direction changed. You presented the face more open or more closed. Those are the typical reasons for a bad shot with a golfer. Yes, we can look at the other four um, ball flight laws, but we typically we don't have to. That's more of an optimization thing. So I get people to, I first educate them in, in do they know about those big three? So that's the first thing here. All the listeners can kind of go, okay, well, now I'm educated at least. Maybe I'll, I'll forget it after this podcast where I can go and buy Adam's book and, <laughs> and, and reread it. Um, so the education part is first, do they know what they should do? Then the next part is awareness. So are they aware of what they do? So that's where I, as a coach, will start questioning them after each shot. They hit a shot and I say, okay, well, what happened with that shot in those three variables? So they might hit a shot that goes farther right than normal. And I say, well, what happened? And they might say, oh, well, I, I did this with my swing. And I say, well, yeah, that's all well and good. But what happened at impact? What did you change in the big three? And I'm asking them to get to the point where they say, oh, well, I must have presented the face more open than usual. I go, yes. Or sometimes that ball might shoot 90 degrees right because they toe shanked it. And so a player needs to be able to identify the difference, right? Because if they, if they toe shank it right, and then they try and the next swing, they try and close the face, they're going to they're gonna be in a, in a bit of a mess because they fixed the wrong thing. So how do you know if you struck the center of the face? Feedback is important. Use face spray. So Dr. Scholl's foot spray or Dactarin in the UK or CVS brand is the cheapest one. Just spray the face, little light dusting. And when you hit the shot, you can see the imprint of the ball on the club face. So that's great feedback. So then you can determine if that ball goes right and you look down at the club face and you see it on the sweet spot, you can at least eliminate it. It wasn't a toe shank or a heel shank. It was an open face. 
And then what was the other thing? Ground contact is tough to, to get feedback on. Uh, if you're practicing on a grass range, that's that's brilliant. You can spray, use the Dr. Charles foot spray, spray a line on the ground, place the ball on top. And then after that, you can see, did I make a divot? And was it in the right place? So that divot should obviously start very close to that line, you know, on the line or maybe an inch in front of it, half an inch in front, something like that. I have a, a feedback device called a divot board. Now you can Google that Adam Young Golf divot board. And it's a it's a board with sequins on it. They're highly durable. Have you seen those pillows that you can or cushions that you can brush one way and it produces a different picture and then you brush the other way and it changes color? Well, this yep. is the same thing. So there's a, a decal of a, a yellow spot on the middle of the board. You place the ball on the yellow spot. Then you make your swing. And wherever your club contacts the ground, it will flip the sequins over. So you can see very precisely where you've contacted the ground. So that's what I use for feedback on that. I used to get give people an old club and get them on concrete. And I used to draw a little dot on the concrete and just say, make a swing, chip the concrete and make it as close to that spot as possible. So again, all of these things are external tasks. They're thinking outside of their body, right? They're thinking about, did I present the face open or closed? Did I hit this gra the ground in the right place? Did I hit the sweet spot? Um, and so, so there are three ball flight laws that are gonna determine your success as a golfer. There's then the feedback, am I doing it? And then we go into the development things how, how do I develop this as a skill do I start to fiddle around with my swing or is there another approach and the approach that I found works best for retention learning all that stuff performance and fits in with the science that the approach I've found works best is the external task-based approach so it could be just um, you know you have the spray on the face let's try and hit 10 toe shots for the next five minutes Let's try and shank it for the next five minutes. And people go, oh, my God, well, I'm not supposed to do that. And, uh, you know, I, again, this is a, a thing that as an instructor, I found worked really well. It's completely counter to what I had learned as a, as a, you know, we're all taught perfect practice makes perfect, right? That's the mantra most people go. And there's me standing on the lesson T telling people to shank it intentionally. <laughs> and so it's completely counter. But I found that worked really well. If I, I actually did a study on this with golfers when I first started. I, I, I used to have an influx of new golfers every week and they would stay five days for me when I taught in Austria. Um, they were either, they had to do a certification to play on the course. It's very strict out in Europe. And uh, so I, it was a great opportunity. I could get these golfers for five days and I could split them into different groups. And so one group I would, I would work on just striking the center of the face over and over. That's what they would do for the five days. And the other group I would work on, well, let's hit toe, let's hit heel, and then try and hit the center. So they're exploring the, the space a little bit more. And what I found was that the golfers who explored a little bit more, who did the intentional wrong things sometimes, they performed better and they learned quicker. And that, that uh, learning retained for longer as well and transferred to the golf course better. And those players were better able to self-coach because they were better able to identify things as well. If they hit a shank, they didn't stand at me looking, going, what, what happened? They were like, oh, I shanked it. I'm like, how do you know you shanked it? Oh, because I've been practicing that for, for 10 minutes earlier. So I know what a shank sounds like, feels like, 
looks like. So there are all these benefits from doing this exploratory practice, which I now know is called differential practice. In the motor learning literature, we call it differential practice. It's where you're trying to do something intentionally wrong. Um, it's, it's just a really interesting thing. And, and that lots of people resist that at first because they don't understand it. And in all honesty, I would have. I, I would have thought I was mad if I, I did that as an instructor initially as a, or as a player if some instructor gave that to me until they told me some of the science behind it. And that's where I can jump in and say, well, look, I've done studies on this where I, I've split groups into two and this approach works better. So it's up to you. You can stick with that, trying to hit the sweet spot over and over, trying to hit straight over and over. Or you could do the try and hit right, try and hit left, try and hit toe, try and hit heel, at least as a portion of your practice. It doesn't have to be all of your practice, but at least as a portion of it. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine having someone read your book, read about the science behind it, probably a lot easier for them to get on board now with you standing there for 30 minutes and having them just kind of work, you know, hitting different parts of the club face. I think, you know, I speak for, for Henry a little bit when it is a little bit tough to sometimes convince a golfer that that's a quality golf lesson to sit there and just work on hitting various parts of the face. I think there's a lot of expectation of slow motion video, uh, you know, body analysis, pressure plate, you know, analysis and all this sort of stuff. But we always get back to, you know, Henry and I of, yo, this is going to have to go to the golf course at some point right? Like you're going to have to go play golf unless you're the rare person who wants to just learn how to hit golf balls on the range off of a flat piece of AstroTurf the rest of your life. I've yet to encounter that person. All of this is going to have to go to go to the golf course at some point. You're going to have to be able to make an athletic move and not be, you know, bogged down with swing thoughts. And so there's a lot of science and, and reasoning behind this external focus of feeling where you hit on the face. I mean, we, all three of us know when we hit it a little bit out of the heel and we can feel that and hear that. And we can also hear it when our student hits it a little out of the heel, we go, yep, that was out of the heel. They go, really? How do you know? Like, you know, you, you just done it enough times. You've heard a heel shot enough times, you know, distinctively what a heel shot looks like, what the heel shot spin looks like, you know, kind of ballooning up to the right potentially um, and all that sort of stuff. But when it, I want to transfer to, to this idea of PA coupling, right. And, and kind of going into that a little bit in how making swings, you know, on the range and learning these things and then, you know, coupling that, it, it, what does that couple to, and how do we take that sort of stuff out onto the golf course? How does that change? Yeah, this, this one could be difficult because I, external focuses of attention don't always get around this problem. They can, and I'll explain how they can, but it doesn't always, but basically you can think of PA coupling. It's, um, I've forgotten what it, <laughs> something action, cu perception, perception action coupling. You know, I, haven't told, I, I, tend, I tend not to talk about perception action coupling unless it's like a blog post or, or something like that. Because Really? We, Henry and I both thought that was, that was one of our, uh, you know, kind of favorite chapter so far. Yeah. Well, if you're reading it, you know, I think you can take on board, but if, if you're in a lesson with a player who just wants to get better, I, I don't tend to use 
too many complex words. I tend to keep it simple. So, but it, it PA coupling means perception, action coupling. So it's perception is, you know, it's, it's everything really. It's what you're thinking about internally in your head. It's what's going on in the environment as well. Um, you know, a great example of that is if, if you are preparing for a presentation, for example, and you stand there, you do this perfect presentation when you're on your own in your room, and you've got a computer screen in front of you. And then all of a sudden you think, right, I'm ready for this presentation. And then you stand up in front of a thousand people and your mind just goes completely blank, right? The, the task is the same. You've got to stand there and produce words, but the perception is different. Now you've got things that you didn't have before. You've got people watching you. You haven't practiced that before. The way around that is to get up and practice more in front of people, right? So you get more comfortable with that kind of stuff. But um, I had that problem as well. You know, if in, in a podcast format like this, I can just flow, as you can see, with words, I could go for hours and hours and it'll all come out. Uh, yet when I first started recording myself on video, I'd press that record button and my mind would just go blank. Everything would go out, out of the window. Um, or I remember I suffered with carpal tunnel one time. And so I got a headset that you, you speak into and it writes, it types it for you. And uh, I can type a thousand word blog post in an hour easily. Yet when I put this headset on, just nothing would come out at all. <laughs> the task is the same, but there's, there's a slight different perceptions. And, and so right. this happens in golf, right? When we're on the driving range, uh, we have a certain environment. We might, might be thinking certain things. There are certain things missing from a driving range environment as well. So if you train on a, on a driving range, you get really good you start to think, right, awesome, I'm ready. I'm ready for the golf course. You go on the golf course and then you slice, top, shank, duff it. And you think, what the hell happened? I was like hitting like a, a range god. What happened? Uh, and it's, it's all down to that perception, action, coupling. And, um, you know, things link up in our brains. So the environment links up in our brains. Uh, if people are watching, all that stuff links up in our brains, kind of like if, if people have heard of Pavlov's dogs. So this is where Pavlov, um, he trained his dogs by ringing a bell and then he would feed them and then he'd ring the bell and feed them. And so over time, the dog's brains linked up, ringing the bell equals food. So it, it came to the point where all he had to do eventually was ring the bell and the dogs would salivate. Um, there's, this even has been done on humans where people have, I saw a funny one the other day where um, they linked the cell phone ringing to an electric shock. So every time their phone rung, they got an electric shock. And they did it for, I think, just five or 10 hours, something like that. It didn't take long for the learning to occur. And for weeks later, whenever the, the person's cell phone rung, they, they flinched because they were expecting an electric shock. And they couldn't not do it either. Even though the logically they were saying, well, I know I'm not getting shocked now. They still, their bodies responded to it. So it, it bypasses a lot of the conscious stuff as well until a new thing gets ingrained. Um, and so this, this links strongly to ex internal and external focuses of attention. If you imagine on the range, what are 90% of golfers doing? They're thinking really internally. They're thinking, right, I've got to do this for my body. And they, some people are very good at that as well. They can get their mind fully focused on what they're trying to do body-wise. And they can get to the point where the ball's flying off nicely. Then they get onto the golf course and all of a sudden there's a flag there and there's a target and there's a result there. Now their brain is thinking about the target. So their brain is thinking about something different 
So just like Pavlov's dogs ringing the bell, what is that player going to do when their bell is rung, when their, their flag is, is there? They're going to come back to what is attached to that, which is the old swing, mm. right? Their old mm. swing motion is attached to that focus. Think of the target, old motion comes up. Think of the target, old motion comes up. When they're on the range, they can ignore the target a little bit more. They can be more focused internally. But this is why these things are not transferring that well for a player. And so this is where you're, there's many approaches around this. You can just train, 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 put loads and loads of reps in and gradually add context back in when you're training. So that could be a situation where you play a game on the range where your target now means something. So I used to run a group coaching thing, which was, um, you know, players would do their training, whatever they're working on. And then we get everybody together and we'd say, right, we're going to do a little competition. Here's a 20 yard wide target. You're all going to hit a seven nine and you're going to stand up there one by one and you're going to hit in front of everybody. So now we're bringing context back in. We're bringing the target back in. We're bring, bringing observers back in, which automatically brings pressure back in. Maybe I even bring a team event. So I split them into two teams. So now there's real pressure. So that target now really means something. And uh, what you see is often people revert back to their old habits because all that context is coming back in. So, you know, when going through this, you could either bounce around between these extremes. That's kind of frustrating. Or you can slowly do what's called uncoupling and recoupling. So that's a training process where the uncoupling part is you take away context. So it allows you freedom to be able to make the changes. And bear in mind, this is all if you're trying to change your swing directly. But it could be, you know, if you're trying to do the nail drill, for example, as well. It can be hard to do that on the course as well. So say you're trying to do the nail drill. The first step I would take with someone is I would remove uh, the ball. So they, don't, they haven't got any ball. So there's no result at all. So let's see if you can do hammer that nail without a ball. Once they can do that, we layer on a new level of context. Okay, let's use a paper ball, a ball, you know, a, a ball up a piece of paper. So now they have to hit an object. So that's a new level of difficulty, but there's still no result. And then we might even do this into a net. So they don't even have a target. They don't even have the environment there. And we see if they can do it then. If they can, we layer on a new level difficulty we might take that paper ball to the range so now we're bringing back in the environment again if they if they can't do it we stay at that level but if they can do the new thing then we move up we add another layer of of context so we now um, we now use a real ball but it might be teed up and then you just keep layering on that context so then you'd layer on um, a real ball and a target then you'd add a, a real ball, a target and a game. So you have to hit this target seven out of 10 times. So now there's a kind of pressure. Then you might layer on an observer. Then you may might layer on a team event. So you're, you're taking a player through the ladder of context. And then that player will be ready to take that onto the golf course. So that's a, if people are really obsessed with changing their swings, that's probably the approach you'd have to do to do that. Um, the other approach is you have to be incredibly good at controlling your attention. Hmm. So for example, if you ask me to change my swing on the course, I can do it. If you ask me to, all right, I want you to swing back and I want you to 
swing left across it, you know, make a 10 degree left path. I'll be able to do it instantly. Then if you ask me, okay, make a 10 degree into out path, I can do that instantly. Why? Because if you ask me to do something, I'll put all my focus on that and I'll do it. I'll make that the goal. I'm very good at controlling my attention. And that's hmm. a learned thing as well. But some people can't do that, right? You put a, you put a target in front of them and they automatically go back to their old swing. I'm sure 90% of golfers listening to this are in that camp, right? Where they're like, I just can't do my swing when there's a ball there. I just can't do that swing when there's a target there. It's, uh, it's that, that's where you have to go through this uncoupling and recoupling approach if you can't control your attention like that. Um, or a more a different approach that fits in with the motor learning science is we can use tasks that, um, that train the new motion whilst the environment is still there. So an example of this is if I want to, someone to improve their ground contact, rather than focusing on weight shift, I might put someone in a fairway bunker, uh, draw a line in the fairway bunker and place a ball on top of that. And automatically by default, if you hit just an inch behind in a fairway bunker, you will get a disastrous shot. So automatically, if all you did was go into a fairway bunker and train over and over again, and you didn't think about anything about how to do it, you just trained in a fairway bunker, you would figure out, your unconscious would figure out how to strike that ball first, then turf. And that's what Seve did, right? Seve used to skip school, go down to the beach and hit balls on the beach. And he was one of the best iron strikers of all time. That's how he, how he learned his game. So that's, that's called a constraint, we constrain the environment. So in this case, you're constraining the ground strike. You're making it more difficult. Um, you know, on a range mat is the opposite of that, right? On a range mat, you can get away with hitting it three inches behind. So what happens is people learn to get away with hitting it three inches behind. And uh, there's, no, there's no need to change or evolve the swing as a result. So that can backwardly self-organize if you're, if you're training in an environment that's too easy. Uh, another example of that, something that I use personally, I have a training club and this training club is a blade. It's very, very small, sweet spot. And the club is actually three degrees too upright for me. So when I hit with that club, it, it improves or it encourages me to hit the sweet spot more often. Because if I miss that club by just a few millimeters, I feel it, it feels horrible. Whereas I actually play with more game improvement clubs and I can get away with missing that. So I use this really difficult to hit club because that forces my brain to self-organize a more centered strike. And also I tend to suffer with missing left. So counterintuitively, I have made that club more upright and that encourages me to miss left even more. So why on earth would I do that? Why do I, why do I want to encourage the mistake to happen? Well, actually, in the science, if you encourage the mistake to happen, your brain is more likely to try and search for a solution. And so as I'm practicing unconsciously, if I do lots and lots of reps, unconsciously, I figure out how to make that, that club go less left or more right. And so when I go back to my game improvement clubs, my pattern is more right biased then, which is a benefit to me because I tend to miss, miss left. So it, when you encourage the mistake 
you're basically using a constraint. We call that a constraint in the motor learning literature, which encourages us to unconsciously learn the correct movements. So I've had players who I do that with. I don't tell them anything about even face or path. I just give them a club that's either too flat or too upright for them. I get them to go off and practice, come back next week, and all of a sudden their trackman or, or GC quad numbers have changed. And they're hitting their club straighter. Another example of that, I have someone who hits it too low. They didn't realize they were hitting it too low, but I look at their launch angle, it's like eight degrees. I know if we can get that higher. Um, and so I give them a club with lower loft. You think, oh my God, I'm giving them a club that makes their result worse. But what happens? The first few swings they hit with that, it's not getting airborne. I give them that for a week. They come back. They're now getting this, this lower lofted club airborne. They figured it out. They figured out how to get it airborne. They're getting more behind it. They're hitting more up on it. Their angle attack numbers have changed. Perfect. Didn't tell them anything about that. They just unconsciously self-organized. Then you give them their old club back, and all of a sudden they're hitting that higher as well. So again, an example of giving them a constraint, a club that encourages the, the fault, and they figure out unconsciously a solution. So these are good ways of changing someone's technique without getting them to think about it. And the beauty of this is they're doing it all the while while thinking about their normal uh, thing. So if they are a very target-oriented person, if they like thinking about the flag, as they're using this lower lofty club, they're still thinking about the flag. So the good thing with that is their brain is now encoding the new movement pattern that the, the new, you know, that constraint club is using. The brain is encoding the new movement with their, their thoughts that they use on the course. So when that player goes on the course, the new movement is more likely to come out as well. So it's another way around it. None of these things are perfect, by the way. They're just all tools for us to think about as coaches. And if you're a, a player listening to this, it's just a, a new thing that you could add to make the whole process of change more reliable and, and uh, easier and faster. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, Henry. That's some serious information there, Adam. Um, there for a second, I thought you threw my, my brain in a blender, <laughs> pressed spin, and it, it got mixed up. And then it came out in a, in a very organized fashion for me personally. Um, and I can totally see where you're coming from in your, in your step, three-step process of a player understanding ball flight laws, basically what is required of the club to produce a golf shot. The second was having the awareness uh, uh, of what they're currently doing, right? Having some kind of a feedback mechanism in terms of, of, of what they are doing currently to cause the ball flight that they're getting. And then... Yeah. Uh, developing the skill, uh, ultimately making that change from where they're at now to where they want to be through their understanding of ball flight. Um, you mentioned that it seems to pr produce better results when a person is external process oriented, focusing on mm -hmm. the club movement itself. Um, and then this differential practice, um, I definitely have experimented with that myself and, and, and with some of the players that I've coached, Keith and I talk about it quite a lot when we get that player who's shanking the ball and we're like, why don't you ever just try hitting it on the toe? Like do yeah. something <laughs> different brother. And so, you know, it, it's, it's kind of that, that old saying, you know, doing the same thing um, over and over and expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. And so yeah. it seems though that a, a player 
would need to have a, a, a working understanding of this. And I'd add one, one thing is that they'd, be, they'd need to be willing to practice ugly. They, they need their practice mm, yeah. to, to, to be difficult. Um, they're going to have challenges. They're going to struggle with it. It, it might be more difficult than it will be with their, uh, with their, with their, the equipment that they're going to be using on the golf course or some of the lies that they might experience on the golf course. And so um, a, a person must be willing to actually go through that process of learning in order to come out the other end, a much better, more competent player. This is one of the beauties of differential practice is say you have a player who's shanking it and you're trying to get them to hit it more out of the center. And you say, you've got to try and feel like you hit it more off the toe. That player still has the goal of trying to hit it out the center. Right. So there's this battle whenever we're making a change, there's this battle of, well, I want to do this, but I don't want to do it too much as well there's this internal battle and that that latter part the i don't want to do this too much is often the thing that stops or holds us back from real learning so what differential practice does is it takes the limiter off that because what when i train with a player i might say to them i want you to actually hit it off the toe I don't want you to try and move it towards the toe so it's a centered strike. I want you to toe shank this, this one. I want you to hit an intentional bad shot for the next few. So that produces a completely different mindset because that person is like, oh, right, it doesn't matter if I overdo this now. Maybe that's not a conscious thing they're saying, but certainly if it's felt as a player. And so, you know, say, for example, you have someone who sliced it all their life and you're, you're like, well, you need to get the face more closed. And they're like, well, and they're still slicing it. Well, I'll just say to them, right, I want you to turn that club face 80 degrees left at address and grip it. And I want you to hit it over your left shoulder for the next few. And lo, lo and behold, everybody can do that. And then and then you can gradually bring it back in. You know, OK, do it a little less now, a little less, a little less. OK, look, there we found center. And so that differential part is the first part of that, right? You take, you're trying the opposite end of the spectrum and it unlocks something in people. I don't know what it is, but, you know, there's loads of explanations for it. I don't really care for the explanations. It's just, it, it, it works. It, it improves someone as, but like you said, it means that you're going to have to do something ugly at first. You know, you're going to have to hit the opposite fault, but you've got to understand you can always bring it back from there. And, you know, this type of stuff I wouldn't necessarily do before you go out and play a tournament round of golf. You're not going to learn a new, do a differential practice drill before a tournament round of golf, which is why in the book I show people how to structure their, their season and their weeks and their months uh, in order to get the most out of these different types of practice. But, you know, this is certainly something I would do more off season with a player. So now is a great time to start these things. Or even in season, if you've got a lot of training with this stuff, then I, I will still do this. I'll still try and hit more out of the toe and more of the heel before you you try and recalibrate things. Um, before I go off at too much of a tangent, where were we with the question? <laughs> so training ugly was a part of it. Training ugly, and yeah, as that as that just you know came up was you know you're changing a person's intention. You talked about intention earlier. It's also important for a player to know that. 
as the intention changes, it's going to change the ball flight. And that's the same intention that they might need to take to the golf course. They're yeah. in no way needing to go back to what they believe is, is, is to be correct. And I think that kind of tied in with some of the coupling that, that, that you guys talked about earlier is that when people get on the golf course, they change their intentions. Uh, yeah. I mean, intention drives movement for the most part, you know, when, when most instructors see a beginner, who's on their back foot and flipping at it, they're seeing mechanics, right? That's how most amateur golfers would say. If you play with a buddy who's on his back foot and flipping, you'd probably tell them that. What I see when I look at that player is, oh, that person doesn't understand how a golf ball's hit. That person mm -hmm. thinks that you have to go up into a golf ball. Their movement is perfectly matched for their intention, you know, mm. and this can be this can almost be proven by when I give them the divot ball drill or that concrete drill. Right. If I if I get them on concrete with an old club, I draw a little dot on the concrete and I say hit that spot. All of a sudden they start to organize a better weight shift. They start to organize lag shaft lean. And you're not telling them anything about this. You're just giving them the task of you have to hit that spot. And the body can figure it out. Oh, we're amazing at figuring stuff out. I mean, you, you look at kids, an example of what I used in the, in the book, and my physics is not up to point, but I was watching my little niece with a, a roundabout, a little merry-go-round, and she was trying to push it, and she was pushing into the center of it, and it obviously wasn't moving. And then she figured out, oh, well, if I push off center, then it starts to turn. And oh, I, actually, if I lean my body forwards, I, I actually start to turn it faster. So that kid who has no knowledge of physics has just understood how force through center of masses and moment arms, you know, leaning her body forward increases, the, changes the moment arm and changes her ground reaction forces. She's figured out all these physics principles just by exploring, pushing center, pushing side, getting lower, just by playing, exploring the gamut of the scale. She's figured out how to get this merry-go-round to go around. And so that, principle uh applies in golf as well if i can get players to play around with certain things and, and just direct them towards certain tasks and, and play around with the gamut either side of it they'll figure out more optimal ways of doing it and by doing that as well like i said it's all external they're thinking outside of their body uh, and they're learning by learning the ends of the spectrum by not just learning how to hit a, a specific spot by learning the other side of it they're learning to be more adaptable as well so like you said when you get on the course and the ball is above your feet or below your feet you can change to it or if the wind is left or right you can make the ball go more left and hold up against the wind or even adapting to yourself every day we are a different golfer i've had a toe bias pattern for like two months Right. And they, they, actually, the story behind why I have a toe bias pattern is because I'm practicing indoors a lot at the moment. My unconscious knows if I shank it, I'm dead. Right? <laughs> Whereas if I hit it a little off the toe, I'm OK. So my unconscious has veered more towards the toe. But the other day I woke up and I was practicing and everything's healed. Things can flip on you at, at the drop of a hat. And for what reason? I don't know. I woke up out of the bed a different way. Maybe, you know, I played a little bit too much table tennis and my hips a little bit saw but it doesn't matter because i can still move that back now because i've explored either side for so long i know how to move it back and forth at will so i i as a player never have to suffer with a problem i don't suffer with a shank yes okay a heel shot might pop up every now and again but i have the tools to quickly and precisely move it back 
Similarly, I might wake up one day and I have a, a draw 90% of the time. 10% of the time, I might wake up and the ball's going right. Okay, not a problem. I know what it feels like to close the face. I know what it feels like to open the face. So whatever problem occurs, um, it, it can be fixed easily. And that might happen in the middle of a round, right? You start, everything's great at the start of a round. And then all of a sudden you get tired, you get fatigued, you get hungry, hungry you get nervous. Things change, different patterns occur. You have to know how to adapt to yourself. So intention drives movement. Exploring either sides of, of what we desire is going to allow us to be, it, it gives us tools is what I say. And you, you as a golfer, you need tools for ground strike. So you need, you need to know, how do I move that ground strike forwards? How do I move it backwards? You need to know face strike tools. How do I move it more towards the toe? How do I move it more towards the heel? And you need face direction tools. How do I open the face more? How do I close the face more? And for all of those things, you could have technical tools. You know, you could say, oh, well, if I do this with my grip, it affects the face this way. And or my preferred method is you can have feel-based tools, intention-based tools. So an example of an intention-based tool, how can I hit more towards a toe? Well, one of the ways that I train golfers as a beginner is I will place the ball on the ground and I will use my spray, my Dr. Scholl's foot spray, and I will spray one dot a little bit farther away, another dot even farther away from their feet and another dot farther away again. And then I'll spray three dots closer to their feet. Does that make sense? You've got mm. a ball yep. and you've got basically six dots either side of it. Now I can take the ball away. This is a drill that can be done with out a ball if i ask a player to swing back and swing over the closest spot to them and then swing back and swing over the farthest spot to them everybody can do it everybody can swing over different spots closer farther away to them anybody listening to this who thinks they can't do this just try it set up with a golf ball and miss the ball completely to the inside then miss the ball completely to the outside so that shows that everybody in the world has the ability to instinctively present the face differently. Everybody, even a complete beginner, we can tap into our intention and our instinct. Then it's just a matter of learning to control that more precisely. And so that's where the three spots comes in or six spots. I can, I can give those spots numbers. I could say minus one is closer to you, minus three is really close to you, plus three is the one that's farthest away from you. And I can say, right, give me a plus two and they give their, their best attempt. Give me a minus three and they give their best attempt. And then we can start to give them feedback. Did, did that match up with reality? Okay, you wanted a minus two, but that actually swung right over the zero mark. And so that information is valuable as well. You, you can say, okay, for your best shots at the moment, you probably have to feel a minus two, right? So that, that, that goes into the point of intention drives movement, but intention doesn't have to match reality. You know, I can often hit us, hit the, I can often play golf hitting the sweet spot over and over, but my brain is actually trying to hit the toe because I've been suffering with a heel strike that day. Or, you know, I, I, I used to do this with people where I hit shots and uh, they're standing watching me and I say, what do you see? And they say, well, every shot is going straight and you're hitting the sweet spot every time. I say, yeah, that's what you see. Here's what you didn't see. 
every one of those shots, I was trying to present that face open and I was trying to hit more out of the heel. Mm. So that's where, you know, I, maybe the first shot of the day, the ball goes left and it was off the toe, right? So what am I going to do as a golfer? I'm going to try and introduce the opposite intention to that. That was left and off the toe. So what's the opposite of that? I'm going to try and hit off the heel with an open face. That player is seeing a straight ball flight. They're not seeing the internal things I'm doing with my intention. And all those things have been trained to the point that they're precisely controlled now. I'm a very good demonstrator of the ball. We never get to the point where we're perfect with it. You know, those guys who are doing it are are elite golfers. But if you don't have the tools or ability to control something and precisely, those are things that can be trained directly. So just recapping that because i think that was a lot of just insanely awesome information you know first what your ability and you know both henry and i can speak this as well is like the awareness of what we're doing that day the awareness of what is the opposite of what we're doing or what we need to do to straighten out the ball flight or to move the strike point more center or to move the low point where we want it to be and then the ability to have one intention and to hold that one intention you know, more focused than the next player for each subsequent swing. You know, I've, I've gotten to the point where I don't, you know, Henry and I don't practice a ton, you know, with what we have going on, but I feel quite confident. I could step out onto a golf course, just kind of like feel my way through a a few swings and kind of know what I need for the day and then get to shooting a pretty good round. Not because, you know, I need to be making a lot of swings, but like you said, we've built that awareness of, okay, I'm hitting it out the heel. That's my predominant pattern. Okay, I know what it feels like to hit it more out of the toe, but I know that's going to move the strike point more center. And then I just kind of get on with the round um, and then let that sort of just settle out. Also knowing that that could change after nine holes or that could change after 10 holes and not letting that freak me out uh, because I have the tools. I'm equipped with the tools to get myself where I need to go or move the needle in the right direction. And that comes back to your point of teaching a man to fish, right? Mm-hmm you know, in, in creating self-reliant golfers uh, of people who aren't just completely panicked and have no idea what to do, you know, when things go wrong. Um, and so I think also what's great is just giving golfers this other information, right? Like you said, 99% of golfers have been handed internal focus of attention thoughts in every golf magazine and in every YouTube video. It's, you know, if you want to hit it out of the center, move your right arm in this manner or shift your weight in this direction. Uh, So I think it's just refreshing to present a different side of the coin uh, and for just people to ponder some other solution to these issues that as golf instructors, we know are never going away anytime soon. People are going to be slicing it and hitting out of the hitting shanks for for the rest of time. So I think it's just great to have different sources of, of information to give these people. Yeah, and on that topic, again, of internal versus external, um, you know, one of the, I had a player who's very analytical and obviously his swing thoughts were internal. And I, I was talking, I was you know, briefly talking about this stuff. I was actually just playing on the golf course with this guy. And so we were just chatting about instruction and I was chatting about my philosophy, which was completely 180 from what, how he thought and how he's been taught. And so I thought the best, probably the best example of why external focuses are better and why the simple focuses are better, why this one intention is better, is an example of ground contact, 
right? So just the act of hitting that ground in the right place, there are so many variables that go into that. You have low point position. So that's whether the, if you think of the swing as a circle, that's whether the lowest point of that circle is too far forwards or too far back. And so if you were to do that internally, you'd be looking at things like weight shift, swing direction, um, release. So already you've got three variables. But even worse for that, to, to control that ground contact, if you are to go a little bit higher, or a little bit lower for whatever reason, that dramatically affects ground contact. If you were to raise up just, or I'd say drop down a quarter of an inch, that could relate to hitting three inches behind the ball, which we know is a disaster in golf. So now the analytical person would say, okay, well, let's control my height. How do I do that? Okay, well, you say, well, what mechanically goes into controlling the height? Well, um, the, the height that the club comes into impact, your knee flex. So if you flex or extend your knees at all, um, any body up and down movement. So you could take any one of the vertebra. Um, it could be all of them. Uh, whether your weight moves forwards or back towards the ball, farther away from it, even rotation amounts, whether you rotate more open or less open, that's going to affect the height. Your arm length. So whether you're flexing or extending your arm, the release, whether you release it earlier or later, even the scapula retracting, protracting, all of these things go into controlling the height. And we have to control it by like an eighth of an inch to be a good golfer. And so the task becomes impossible if you are to think internally, because if you're to try and control those 10 things that I just said, the problem is, and this has been scientifically proven, if you focus on one of those things, say you focused on the knee flex, what would happen is you would improve your control of the knee flex, but the other nine variables, scapula, retraction, protraction, release, all that stuff, they start to become less consistent. So when our brain puts focus on too much focus on one area of our body, the other variables become less consistent. So you could actually improve in consistency in one part and your ground contact gets worse. And we'll know this as players listening that, yeah, that makes sense. Cause I remember trying to control my, my height and, and I just fatted it even worse. Why was that? It doesn't make sense. So the solution to that, if there's all these different things that control arc height and focusing on one of them makes the others worse, what's the best way? Well, the best way is actually focus on the external result. So this would be controlling the club, brushing the grass. So if I asked a player, right, just make a swing without a ball. I want you to brush the very tops of the grass. I just want you to hit the very tip of the grass and they make a swing. All right, next one, I want you to hit the middle of the grass. Next one, I want you to hit the base of the grass. Next one, I want you to dig in, make a slight divot. And then the next one, I want you to take a huge chunk. What I've done is I've given a person an external task and they're exploring the gamut of that task and they they can all do it people are brilliant at doing this if you if you don't if you don't agree with me go outside and try it yourself you'll find you're better at it than you think and the interesting thing is when you do that if you were to spend a long enough time training that skill and i'll tell people how to really train it in a moment if you were to spend a lot of time training that skill of higher lower just thinking about what the club is doing through impact your brain from that one global goal, we call it, will organize all those 10 bits of movement that we talked about. 
it will organize them to produce that goal. So if you give your, your brain a single goal, it will organize the movement to achieve that goal. But if you try and focus on the sum of the parts, or sorry, the, the parts themselves, then your brain loses sight of the goal, right? The person who's thinking about left arm straight or bent loses the goal of brushing the ground. That's not in their awareness anymore. So the brain is not operating towards that goal. And so they, they become worse at the goal. And so this is the, the, what is it? The goal of the sum of the parts is greater than, <laughs> what's that phrase again? <laughs> the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. That's yeah, very yeah, yeah. true here. You know, the sum of the parts, all the moving things. Well, the goal or the whole, the end result, the club brushing the ground is greater than the sum of the parts. Right. And that is true. So how could you train this? How could you take this to the next level with training? Well, one of the things I use to people is I get little bits of carpet, little squares, little sample size bits of carpet with different thicknesses of, of pile on it. And I place a guitar pick on top and I say, right, just go off and practice clipping that guitar pick off. And so what that does is the plane is the person thinking externally and they just play this game of higher, lower, right? If they go too high, they miss the guitar pick, which would be a thin shot. If they go too low, they'll, they'll move the carpet too much. So I give them tolerances of what's acceptable. And so, you know, they make a swing. Oh, I've moved the carpet. I need to go a little bit higher. Oh, I've missed the guitar pick or I need to go a little bit lower. And through playing this game, they eventually get better at controlling the height that they, they enter with the club to a precise enough degree that they can now hit every ball flush. You know, they never have to suffer with a fat or a thin shot. And you can make that game more or less difficult. If you want an easier task, use a thicker carpet. If you want a harder task, use a thinner pile of carpet. Or you could use a bottle cap instead of a guitar pick. It's, it's just ways of adjusting or scaling the task difficulty so it's not too frustrating for a person. You know, if you're doing a task and you're only getting it right one out of 10 times, that's too frustrating and learning will probably be lower. But if you're doing a task and you're getting it seven out of 10 times, you're not making enough mistakes, which goes into the train ugly. I, keep I try to keep people between that seven, three to seven out of 10 success rate with a task. If they can do it seven out of 10 times, I make it more difficult. If they're only doing it three out of 10 times, I make it easier for them in some, some regard. But again, that's just a task that you can do at home in the garage, garage, sorry, I've got to Americanize everything. <laughs> um, so that task that you can do at home, that's external, that's scaled to your to a level of difficulty that is is you know goes in with the challenge point theory of motor learning and uh, will self-organize movements when i give people that task they self-organize all the up and down movements we talked about never have to even think about them they self-organize low point as well that gets better without them thinking about it you know with that striking the ground in the right place drill striking the concrete spot I've had people who, who they come back after five minutes of that. They learn how to shift their weight better, how to produce lag, how to get forward shaft lean without me having to tell them any. I even had a guy the other day who had tried to do those things consciously for years and was never able to do them. He's like, oh, I've tried to shift my weight. I've tried to get this lag. I've never been successful. One swing doing the concrete drill. One swing. I videoed it, got all of them. Hmm. And he's like, Huh? I've been trying for that for years and I'm never able to do it. And I was just, yeah, all I asked you to do was hit that spot. 
and try and hit, try and hit a bit in front of it. That's all that I asked. I was like, oh. So it's, yeah, it's just a different way of thinking about it. Again, I've gone wow. on topic, I'm sure. But... You, you are a well, have a wealth of knowledge. Literally a walking database of not only information, but analogies and stories and uh, drills for, for putting this into practice. Um, yeah. Keith and I were talking uh, a couple of days ago that one of the things that we were most impressed with when reading your book was the analogies that you used for describing some of these things. And it's certainly coming through being able to, to list several different uh, descriptions of, of these concepts within every, every conversation. And so um, I can only imagine what you have in your database to provide a student with. Um, and I can only imagine what they're leaving with. I, I, I'm very impressed with, with you and, and the whole conversation. Um, I, I also want to be respectful for your time. Um, Keith, is there anything that you want to ask Adam? Or I think this would be a, a perfect time to say, Adam, we'd love to have you on the show again and talk about the second half of your, of your book because, you know, you have yeah. a, a wealth of information. It was, yeah, it was no, great I, fun. Yeah, I second everything Henry said, man. Um, I am, you know, I think in the beginning of your book, you know, you allude to the fact that it, you know, maybe kind of skim through it the first time, read it, you know, go back through it more in depth. And, you know, I'm definitely planning on going back through it a couple of times. I've made plenty of highlights, plenty of, of notes, you know, uh, rabbit eared plenty of pages. And I'm going to, you know, use, I'm already using plenty of analogies that you've, you've uh, talked about in your book. Um, but yeah, it, this has been an incredibly awesome conversation and we have to have you back on again. Cause I think we could, uh, we could just talk for, for a long, a lot longer. Um, but you know, for, for those people who are looking for some more info on you, um, obviously you've got the practice manual ultimate guide for golfers, which I recommend everybody pick up. Uh, you've got, uh, the sweet spot podcast, right. With you and John Sherman. Yeah, um, yeah. and then, uh, you're pretty uh, prolific on Facebook as I understand, um, anywhere else people can, can get some info on you. Yeah, the main place is www.adamyounggolf.com. I have lot, lots of different programs on there. I've got simpler ones. Um, and, and by the way, the irony of all of this stuff is, although I can sit here and chat about things like self-organization, um, perception, action, coupling, things like that, that might frighten a lot of listeners off. A real lesson with me is so simple. I might, like I said, I might just say, all right, just, hammer this nail <laughs> or just try and hit this spot like that's how simple a lesson it is with me it's, it's boringly simple often um but yeah if if you want the very simple stuff uh, things like the strike plan the accuracy plan i have their programs that they, it has all the stuff you need in there it's not uh devoid of information it, it has all the stuff you need but it's presented in a more user-friendly manner Whereas if you like this conversation and you want to go really deep, I've got about 80 or 90 hours of content in my next level golf program where I go into motor learning topics. I go into psychology, perception, action, coupling, as well as, you know, all the, all the drills and things that I recommend to people. So yeah, it depends whether you want the simple stuff or the whole, the whole, uh, <laughs> like are those PDF files or are they uh, video courses? What is that? They're, they're video. 
video? Yeah, they're video courses. So Next Level Golf is kind of like a Netflix model. I update it with an hour and a half each month, and there's already 80 hours in there. So you have plenty to go through. Um, and then the strike plan and accuracy plan are pretty finished products. They're about two hours, three hours each, something like that. So it just deals with obviously the strike plan deals with face strike and ground strike. So that's probably the major problem for anybody over a five handicap. And then the accuracy plan is more dedicated towards reducing left to right dispersion. So hitting more accurate shots. I mean, we both, we all need both of them. No one's ever good enough at both of them, but it's um, you, you can kind of pick and choose the program that best suits your issues with those things. Awesome. Yeah, well, that's going to be Adam, my next step for sure. I'm going to yeah. definitely look into those. I think that the information that you provided in, in, in the manual as well as through the conversation is totally uh, intrigued my interest. I'm, I'm going to be looking at those online courses as well. So thanks for, for pointing those out. That's all right. Yeah, thanks for yeah. thanks for having me on and it was, it was a good chat as you can tell i could sit here and chat for 10 hours about this stuff i really enjoy it but uh yeah well that just means that you you know you know it like the back of your hand and and that's why that's why your lessons are so simple is because you know it so in depth that you can you can funnel information where you need it to be funneled and you you know i you know there's there's nothing wrong with simple i think i've never come across a golfer who didn't like a simple lesson you know, that's, uh, yeah. I think that'll, that'll yet to, to, to happen. Uh, so, uh, Adam, it's been a pleasure. We really, really, really appreciate you taking the time. Um, and, and we hope that we can, uh, organize another time to talk again. And, uh, and I will be following you and, uh, picking up on more of your material and, and all that stuff going forward. Awesome. It was great to have you on guys. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Adam. appreciate it. Thanks Adam. We'll see you soon. All right, bye.